Frederick Gerton, and I'm the filmmaker. And I'm Leilani Farha, and I'm the advocate. And this is Pushback Talks. So and Leilani, our, our old friends Blackstone, I heard, were like out on the shopping tour in the, in the US. Yeah, they're shopping again. It's getting a bit boring, don't you think? It's so predictable. Mm, yeah. So, yeah, so they, they actually invested another $4 million, which is not much, in um, a Canadian-based company four called... $4 billion? Four, no, no. Four million, uh, just a small amount in a, a, con- a company called Tricon, uh, which is actually Canadian-based, but now they own a 12% stake in this real estate company, Tricon, and Tricon is not is single-family homes, but they also uh, just bought a huge um, apartment complex m- complexes across the U.S. Actually, they bought a company that owns a whole bunch of apartment buildings across the U.S. for billions. Um, so they're they're shopping again. So it's a more concentration of ownership of uh, of our homes around the world. In Germany, this big merger between Deutsche Wohnung and Fonavia, like the two biggest, really really big companies, are now merging in Germany. Which means that also, I mean, they're also big here in Sweden. It's kind of scary. And, and that company is then partly owned by BlackRock, <laughs> another yes. company based, like, is it 100 meters away from the Blackstone uh, <laughs> headquarter? It's yes. like the same Across part of New road. York. Yep. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's a concentration of wealth we see. But anyway, today we're going to talk about, um, well, concentration of wealth. And what we've seen uh, in the Pandora Papers coming out, this amazing big leak that good journalists around the world are now digging deep into, and I think we will know a lot more. And to understand this better, we have invited a friend of ours who we met in, in London, where we have been showing Push several times, Dr. Anna Minton. She is a writer, journalist, academic, a reader in architecture at the University of East London. And she's also the writer of the book Big Capital. Anna Minton, welcome to, to Pushback Talks. How are you doing? Um, thank you very much for having me. It's really good to be here. So, I mean, Leilani, you also know Anna's work since before, and you meet in many of these panels that cook around the world in this, in this area. Yeah, I have to say, I think Big Capital might have been one of the first, I think I read three books about this concentration of wealth, financialization of housing, and I'm pretty sure Big Capital was one of the first three. It's essential reading if you're interested in this in my opinion it's london uk specific but applicable across the world absolutely and if you don't understand london you don't understand how all of this stuff works in my opinion so it's a it's a huge pleasure to have you with us anna Mm. thank you and and anna when you i mean you've seen push twice at least i know because we met and you also (laughs) probably one more time because you also interviewed me uh and then you see the, the Pandora paper leak. What is your take on this? For us, it's like, okay, we've seen this before. It's not, nothing new. How do you react? Yeah, I mean, I think that is actually the conundrum. 
Um, you know, the news breaks, it takes over The Guardian, it's front of uh, the BBC for a couple of days. And yet we have this feeling that it's nothing new. Actually, this is the third mega leak of this kind. First of all, we had the Panama Papers, then we had the Paradise Papers, and now it's the Pandora Papers. And every time it comes out, there's, you know, there's a lot of shock and noise and it's appalling and some high profile politicians and public figures uh, are, are shamed and embarrassed. Uh, and then sometimes there are government noises that, you know, actually we're going to do something about this, um, as happened uh, particularly after the Panama Papers. David Cameron had a big conference to, to, to regulate, um, you know, what was going on in London and he was going to shine a light, etc., etc. And actually nothing happened, you know, and the legislation that the Conservative government had um, put into place, you know, it never came on to the statute books. So what's concerning for me is that actually, you know, these revelations come out again and again, and they'll come out again, you know, and each time they are, if anything, more shocking. You know, the latest revelations in the Pandora Papers are about so many high-profile politicians and, you know, heads of state and huge donors to, to the British Conservative Party, and yet not much happens. And sad to say, in London, I think that in the current political context, it's even less likely to happen in our, our post-Brexit context, where every indication from the government has been actually that the City of London wishes to be, to use a euphemism, more competitive than before, by which they mean actually they're going to continue to try to attract this kind of money. And I mean, of course, Britain is a huge player uh, behind this uh, 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 wealth industry. Um, the majority of companies linked to the Pandora Papers, two thirds of companies of, I think, 956 uh, companies uh, which, which were exposed, two thirds of those actually are in the British Virgin Islands. So British offshore tax havens and the city of London itself, actually right at the centre of all of this. Mm. It's, I know, we, because at every league we talk about the names that drop out. And this time it was the biggest thing was, of course, the, the Tony and Sherry Blair, who didn't do anything criminal, but they, they bought a company in the British Virgin Islands, which then... That was like a house following with it. And as we saw in Push, there is a lot of houses in London owned from tax havens where you don't really know who owns them. And many of them stand empty. That's something we showed in Push, which, of course, means it's I mean, it's it's like it's kind of insane to see. But what but we talk a little bit about these big names, but but we don't talk so much about is the wealth management industry. So I think I'm happy that you mentioned it because London I mean, also in push, we had uh, Roberto Saviano, and he said London is the the capital of criminal money. It's like that's where it's it is the biggest tax haven of all in some way because it's also most of the tax havens are run from London. The the lawyers, the accountants, and all these people. So, do you is that do you think that we're again missing to look into those kind of the facilitators? 
Absolutely. And not only that, wealth management, it's, it's actually high status. You know, to, to say that you work in wealth management is not considered to be in any sense a dirty word. You know, if you were to say, I work for an offshore tax haven, you know, eyebrows might be raised. But wealth management brings with it a whole different host of associations. So I think, you know, the mainstream perception of wealth management is that it's a really positive thing. I mean, you know, it's really good that London and, and the UK are at the centre of this, you know, multi-billion pound industry. It's bringing, it's bringing capital into the country and that's going to benefit uh, uh, the rest of the city, the rest of the country. Of course, you know, it doesn't work like that at all. That's a, that's a complete fallacy that this money actually will be uh, uh, distributed in, a, in, a, in an equitable fashion. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't work remotely like that. But actually, you know, there's a misconception about what wealth management is, you know, and that it is essentially the servicing of um, offshore tax havens, secretive anonymous companies, uh, uh, with, with, well, as you say, criminal money, that it's at the centre of a huge money laundering operation. Yeah, I mean, I find it quite fascinating that the UK, which we, I mean, you know, I come from a Commonwealth country, we look to the mother country for all sorts of things. We have a common law system, just like the UK. Um, the UK is always sort of, I don't know, seems so proper. And to think that it's become this not just itself um, basically the facilitator of all of this corrupt flow of corrupt capital but other markets emulate the same thing that the UK does so Singapore and other countries use that very same model and structures to allow for this flow of capital so I mean I it, it's kind of like um I don't know, like a contradiction to me that the UK that, you know, with all of its long history of law uh, would be at the center of all of this. I don't know if you can explain that to us. I mean, I think in simple terms, the, the image of the city of London and the UK and the rule of law, you know, I mean, in the mid 1980s, a lot of this was simply swept away. Deregulation and Big Bang in 1986, which, which was the deregulation of the financial markets, you know, it created a completely new city. Um, and at the, 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 the foundations of this actually would, were, were that we would be a very low tax uh, and deregulated economy uh, with a big emphasis on a shift to, to privatised services. So actually, you know, regulation from that point on became a dirty word. Get rid of, uh, you know, all regulation that you can. A bonfire of regulations is a kind of conservative uh, mantra. So when you get rid of uh, regulation, I mean, regulation isn't a dirty word. It's actually very closely linked with the rule of law. You know, when you get rid of regulations, you create a fertile climate for this Wild West sort of um, environment that grew up um, in the city of London from the late 80s onwards. So, I mean, I think, you know, we can also be too nostalgic about, you know, uh, 
upright notions of Britishness and fair play. I'm, I'm sure that, you know, there, there were always sort of questions to be asked, you know, through our, our contentious imperial uh, uh, legacy. But from the mid 80s onwards, actually a very, very new culture uh, was created, which was all about you know, getting rid of regulation and bringing in as much capital as, as we possibly could. But isn't the story also that that a lot of people with money, I mean, kleptocrats, people with a lot of money from Nigeria, from uh, from any, I mean, basically stealing money from their own people, that they they move money into London because they feel safer. They, they feel that their money is more protected just because it is a very stable legal system so it's i mean if so the, i mean you have all this influx of russian money and i now saw that the saudi crown prince is buying newcastle football club and it was just like it's again this this flow of money into your country uh money that should make its job in in the home country but it's actually shipped out because they feel safer. Absolutely. Yeah, they feel safer. Um, it's got this reputation. You know, it's it's the place of choice for essentially very large scale money laundering. Um, and the aspect that we haven't talked about so much yet is actually that this money goes into purchasing very, very expensive, super prime, very desirable property in the most expensive parts of London. And the London property market is one of the most expensive uh, uh, property markets in the world and you know this money is having a disproportionate impact actually on property and housing throughout the city and throughout the country uh, as a whole but actually the property assets in themselves in London are very very desirable and they will retain their value because of the structure of of the property market in in the UK. Mm. And this yeah. has a severe effect for for people in the town. Oh, well, it absolutely does. So, I mean, the the whole sort of the myth around creating an economy which is going to attract cap capital uh, from, um, you know, perfectly upstanding uh, as well as nefarious sources, you know, that's based on that Reaganomics notion of trickle down. It, surely it's a good thing to bring in lots of money. Surely it's a good thing to uh, be the destination and the residence of choice for the most, uh, uh, the largest number of ultra high net worth individuals and billionaires in the world. That that's London today, you know. And the argument is, well, you know, that can only be a good thing. They're bringing their money. They're bringing their spending power. They're creating, um, you know, knock on effects. But actually, you know, this wealth doesn't trickle down uh, as, as the narrative assures us that it will and benefit uh, the poorer parts of the city and the lower income parts of the city. It does trickle down, but it displaces existing communities by raising property prices and rental prices and ensuring that lower income communities who, who originally lived there can no longer afford to do so. So they get moved out of the central parts of London to the periphery. And even now from the periphery, we're seeing, you know, very many families, many of whom I know, actually, I live in a in a zone three part of London, which is, it's not exactly a suburb, but it, it's not inner London, you know, and lots of people I know who have children like I do, um, you know, who work in 
decent jobs, but not especially high earning jobs, can no longer afford to live in London. So they, they move out to seaside towns, perhaps like Margate or Hastings or other cities like Bristol and Cardiff. And therefore, you experience those same pressures in those other towns and cities. So it's a whole domino effect, actually, around the country. So trickle down, yes, you know, trickle down does indeed trickle down, but not at all in a beneficial way, in a way where it enhances the, the pre-existing inequalities. Leilani, your uh, dear brother-in-law is a minister in, in the UK government, and he was for a long time also the housing minister. So, and I guess you at the family gatherings also talked about politics. How do you, how do you, what is, the, what is their argument for, for keeping this system up? <laughs> you must have had this many times. Um, you'd be surprised, actually, how steadfastly families can avoid controversial conversations. Um, <laughs> I'm fairly adept at doing that myself, I must say, so that I can actually enjoy my meal and my wine. Um, <laughs> that being said, I mean, I, I can't say um, what my brother-in-law's justification might have been when he was a uh, housing minister, but um, I have heard from... Um, members of the Conservative Party in the UK um, th that, you know, some countries export bananas, some countries export uh, laptop computers, and other countries export finance and property. And the UK happens to be the latter. And, you know, it, it goes to what Anna was saying. I mean, it's this... Um, false narrative that it brings capital in, um, that it makes the country stronger with all this money flowing in, when Anna, as Anna said, it, it's just not true. And it, there isn't a trickle down. And even even um, when I, as rapporteur, would sit across, now I didn't do this in the UK, but I've, I sat across many um, ministries uh, of finance and budgeting, and I would ask them, could you please explain to me, what, how is this productive money, like how does this generate anything in your economy? I was often met with blank stares. They couldn't even explain back to me how it would benefit the, the person that I'm meeting living in abject poverty, homelessness, or even just, you know, kind of crappy housing on the outskirts of a city. Or um, students. Or, or students, or et cetera. They couldn't explain it. And one of the things that people don't, I don't think people understand with this, these huge amounts of money, I'm often told by um, people who are really wedded to neoliberalism, well, you know, it's just the market and the, and nothing these guys, mostly guys, are doing, not complete, not only guys, but nothing they're doing is actually illegal. It might not be in the, in quote, spirit of the law, but, you know, using tax havens isn't illegal and buying properties that are for sale is not illegal. Sure. But first of all, when they buy properties, they're not actually buying it at market rate. Often, it the house might be up for twenty million pounds, and they'll buy it for fifty million pounds because it's fifty million that they're trying to hide or get rid of or not pay taxes on. And that 
that is a, a, a clear distortion of any market insofar as a market exists, right? Those sorts of things, people don't talk about that, that, that this isn't just sort of some normal tran- real estate transaction. There's a whole thing going on here that, that's quite other. Um, Which is money laundering. Yeah. Is this a, is this a pedagogical problem, Anna, to explain to people? Why are people not more angry about this? Why doesn't it really... Uh, I mean, we, we mentioned now it's the third time we we see this happening. And I mean, if you look at some London neighborhoods, traditional na- neighborhoods, they are totally emptied by by people now. So it's it's just this mm. money floating yeah. in. Yeah, and I think just to come back to Leilani's point about these um, astronomical prices that you see, which actually are for the purpose of of, of putting the, 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 the dirty money somewhere. Those, those ridiculous prices are then greeted in British newspapers with headlines saying, you know, most expensive penthouse apartment ever sold for, you know, 80 million, as if this is some really, really positive thing. So it's, it's, it's the narrative, you know, it is the strength of the rhetoric that we've been sold, which is the high prices, and the influx of lots of money, regardless of where it comes from, is a really positive thing for our economy. And that's the narrative we've lived with since the 1980s. Mm. Um, you know, what can we do about that? Well, you know, we need to talk about it in different terms. And while I think that the Pandora Papers and the Paradise Papers and the Panorama Papers, they have done incredible work because they're focused on the specifics quite often of, you know, anonymous companies and and tax deals. And it's quite complicated to sort of, you know, understand some of these structures. I mean, it's deliberately uh, extremely complicated. And the sort of the fun bits in this story are hearing about, you know, whatever celebrity or famous person has been caught up in the scandal. But with regard to the framing of the story, it's not presented, I would argue, actually in, in the right way. It's not presented as a money laundering scandal, actually. It's presented as, you know, people avoiding tax and, you know, some very famous people caught up in that. When really, you know, what we're talking about is a far, far murkier and more problematic picture. Yeah, I also, I I completely agree with that. I think people have a hard time getting their head around this stuff in a way that then can be mobilized on the streets in a, in a certain way. Although, I mean, I suppose Occupy Wall Street was kind of related, related to an outrage around this. Um, one of the things that I think also, Anna, that doesn't get talked about enough is um, I think the figure is something like um, $600 billion every year is lost in taxes, lost taxes every year, that sort of globally, through the use of tax havens. And from a human rights point of view, I mean, what what we say through human rights is that governments have to use all of the, their available resources to address deprivations, whether it's housing deprivation, health deprivation, education, etc. And if they're allowing this tax base to just leave the country 
and and find themselves in some island somewhere and then eventually into a property in the UK, they are not doing what they're supposed to do legally under international human rights law, which is to get those taxes and use those taxes in a constructive way that actually benefits the the vast majority of the population. But I think there, I mean, these are, you know, guesstimates $600 billion, but I, I think that needs to be talked about more. What, what are the real losses here beyond just um, the pressures on the market and the, the skewing of the market? What are the tangible losses? I think it's also, for me, it's like a break of the social contract because the rest of us, we pay taxes. So there's a lot of people who have to pay taxes and then they don't. So, th- so it also destroys society in some way. Well, I, I completely agree with what you're saying. And I mean, I think what I, I, I want to say sort of very much links with that, which is actually it's about a reframing of, of tax. You know, tax is another of those words which, you know, doesn't really have very much traction. Uh, you know, in, in the media, tax uh, by... Apart, you know, I think that the idea of Amazon and, you know, huge uh, corporates like that paying more tax has has started to gain more traction. But generally, politically, all governments are trying to outdo each other, um, especially the British government, around, you know, how low taxes can can remain. Um, You know, and the media narrative around tax is, is... it's not a populist one, to say the least. You know, it's, a li- it's, it's quite similar to regulation. And I think tax has to be framed in a really, really different way. It's not about tax. It's about, as you say, Frederick, the social contract and whether or not we want to have a social contract because the consequence of not paying tax in this way is to destroy our social contract. But it's about the framing of it. And, you know, as a, as a former journalist and someone who is still involved in journalism to, to some degree, you know, the media and especially the UK media has an enormous role to play in how all the issues that we've been talking about today are framed or misframed. Language, Leilani, we talked a lot about that language is important. And Anna, now you're lifting out a lot of very good examples of that. So we, we need to reframe our language and, and win the language to be able to also to win this debate. I, you mentioned Occupy Wall Street, and I don't know if they were a success or not. Uh, it, it became kind of complicated in the end, but we still talk about the 1%. That's something that they framed, and that, that's well, actually there. I think... I think Occupy was a success to 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 a great degree, actually, in in really altering the discourse. And that's what we're talking about. Mm. And actually, when the discourse can alter, then there are so many more possibilities uh, for, for us to get the sorts of points we're trying to get across. Um, so, you know, it wasn't an immediate success, but actually that was huge and it's ongoing. Yeah. And the 1% is something we still talk about. And it is the 1% who are now, the, the Pandora Papers are, are showing the faces of, and the people who are helping the, the 1%, the enablers, the, the wealth management people in London and other places. So it's, it's, I think it's, it helps us a little bit to, to look sharper on this. Yeah, and I think there, I think there are links um, right to you know, our most recent big success that the world has seen, which is Berlin. I mean, they they have really been able to um, harness uh, the David and Goliath 
1% versus the monopoly of Anovia and Deutsche Wohnen and, and others successfully with a solution attached to their banner, right? They just w- weren't just saying, you know, this is unfair, unjust. Uh, they're saying, and we're going to write this, we're going to correct it, and this is how. And they managed to mobilize more than a million voters in their favor. So um, I do think um, this is a sort of cumulative thing that's happening over time. I mean, that's how change happens anyway. Nothing happens overnight. It's accumulative. So maybe we date it to Occupy Wall Street. I don't know where we date it from, but I actually find it amazing within my own sector. What is my sector? I don't know exactly, but human <laughs> rights, housing, mm. how slow we've been um, to sort of galvanize around this and try to move forward. Um, you know, when I became rapporteur, the housing groups themselves were not talking about this. It's no. surprising, right? Like, who do you expect to talk about this? You would think the housing groups would, but. Uh, and you, Leilani, your work has had an extreme impact. You, I mean, what we now hear is activists all over the world using the right framing. Housing is a human right. We, and we didn't hear this before because it was this market, market, market all the time. And you actually, by being so sharp in language, helped people to to fight back. Mm. And I think this is a, it's a huge step. And, and, and I think what, what Anna is talking about here is also the same. We have... We have to reframe. I think that's right. Well, and I think, I mean, authors like Anna, David Madden, who wrote in Defense of Housing, Richard Florida, who actually um, did a whole, I don't know if people know who he is. He's an urban planner academic. Um, he did a mea culpa because he felt he had actually contributed to the kind of financialization of housing in a way. Um, a lot of people are landing that in a place where, where where radical reform is required and human rights does offer that so I mean I think I'm lucky in that I happen to be a human rights advocate but it's the framework itself that I think people find very appealing because what's it about really it's about the kind of societies Frederick you talk about so eloquently the kind of societies we want to live in like don't we want as Frederick would say I'm I'm here's my Frederick voice don't we want people to be happy don't we want to live in peaceful societies with <laughs> with with social inclusion okay you don't say that but is that me yeah yeah, okay. yeah no you do right you I mean, you're very and I, good and I at smile. And yeah, then I, that's and then right. I, but that's what human rights is about. That's all <laughs> it's about: is social inclusion, e- more equal societies, less less uh, inequality, uh, more dignity for everyone, for people who are just playing by the rules. You know, they go to school, they get a job, they should have a good life. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, just to sort of come in on on that, <laughs> and to say, I think also Leilani, what you actually have offered. Um, is is a big picture view as well. I mean, human rights is 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 a really important framing, but you know you were able to sort of draw it together in a big picture view. And I think the real difficulty that housing activists have is that they're so disparate, you know, and they're so tied into local struggles. And it's really really valuable to 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 be able to sort of draw it all together. And you know, human rights is is one um, aspect. Another aspect which just came to mind actually as you were talking about Berlin and the. Success 
successes in Berlin, which actually have been rooted in um, uh, drawing, drawing it together with the public interest in legislation, um, in, in Berlin's post-war legislation. And therefore, um, actually what the activists um, are asking for has a, has a legal basis in law. And around the world, the public interest actually has played that role in so many post-war legislative frameworks. And I wonder if alongside the, the human rights framing, you know, we can try to, to, to find a, a way of actually allowing that public interest discourse to come back in as well. I think what has actually happened now in many places is that people go out on the streets and they fight against with tear gas, you know, and all this. And what they ask for is a new constitution, you know, a better legislation. In Chile, I mean, they are, that's like one of the most interesting things cooking right now, where they, they elected a new assembly to create a new constitution. And, and it's, so now everybody is talking about how should we run this country? What should the rules be? It's, it's, it's very interesting. I and mean, this is after the, the most the biggest protests ever. And nobody was out shouting, fuck capitalism, uh, revolution now. It's everybody, now we want a new constitution. It's kind of, it's, it's super interesting. And I think we should really follow this. Uh, and I think the Berlin, what happens now in Berlin is, is, is also uh, an example of where activists, activists are using legislation, but still the streets also. And I think this is, we should be inspired by those examples. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the winning combination, frankly. Uh, and I think that legislative piece is fundamental um, because it's so much d more difficult to dismantle legislation than it is to dismantle a policy or just some program or something like that. I would say the bulk of what I get asked these days especially very recently, is to talk about the role of legislation. What would the right to housing look like in legislation? Does it have to be in a constitution? Can it just be a kind of legislated right to housing? All sorts of... I'm, I'm quite surprised and very happy for this. And it is activists, grassroots activists, mobilizing who are thinking, okay, how can we how can we really make change here? What would structural change actually look like? I mean, I get it from others as well. National human rights institutions, most countries have them. Um, they've started, I'm starting to get quite a few requests. New Zealand is on a big housing inquiry. The, the Human Rights Commission there is on a big housing inquiry and they're looking at legislation. So I'm really starting to feel this. Spain, of course, has been in discussion for a long time, many, many countries. Um, and of course, we look to the South Africans who use legislation, their beautiful, beautiful constitution, which enshrines the right to housing and many other social and economic rights. The activists, it's like, it's just how they do activism. They always use legislation. It's pretty cool. Mm. So Anna, what is cooking in in your country? Is there anything we could we should look out for that is that's happening? <laughs> Dominic Rab, isn't yeah, he your new justice minister? Oh no, 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 no. Well, I, oh, I want good. to talk about. I want to hear about uh, inspiring uh, resistance. Inspiring. It's quite difficult. To 
I'm afraid, sitting in London to, to think of that many inspiring um, examples, you know. Because you, have to, you have, have to stay in line to, to buy petrol. and, and uh... Well, we don't have petrol in the pumps. We don't have food on the shelves. We've got a supply chain crisis, you know, very largely as a result of uh, Brexit. We've got food rotting in the fields. I mean, it's, it's phenomenal, actually, that, you know, while you've got this Pandora Papers scandal emerging about, you know, the, the, the amount of... of of money capital sloshing around in the city of London you know we've got this political crisis on un, uh, underway which isn't really discussed by by our government um in the midst of all that what can i what can i point you to that that that's inspiring um i mean you know on a daily basis housing activists are carrying on with those fights to save their housing estates and they're continuing to fight local authorities who continue to try to demolish housing estates and you know I am quite hopeful that actually the, there's a there's a fight nearby me um in in Lambeth um which has won many many legislative uh, battles as you say Lilani it's all in the legislation actually and this housing movement um around uh, the demolition of housing estates stopping that actually achieved a really big victory uh and uh it's it's been ruled that the mayor of london now cannot go ahead with the demolition of any housing estate without the agreement of a majority of the residents so that has been a really significant battle and it took years um but you know it has happened so i think you know the big picture we need some really fundamental not incremental change we need the sort of change that we're looking at in berlin but you know on a on a smaller level people are still doing an awful lot where they can but yeah we need some big picture changes here in the uk i'm afraid to say we have quite a few of listeners in in the uk it's like we i mean the top countries of listeners of pushback talks is Sweden, UK, Canada and the US and then Germany and the Netherlands. So you listeners in the UK, send us, tweet Leilani and me or push the film, tweet us stories that you think should be spread. Inspiration coming out of your resistance would be nice to have. I have heard of tenants unions growing in the UK. So that's a good sign. That's a mobilization sign across a sort of broader rather than that really micro local um, that that is important. But it's really important for tenants in particular, I think, to come together. And of course, we saw a huge coming together around Grenfell and those um, advocates continue and have joined with all, as I understand it, with others who are facing this cladding disaster, you know, who have this terrible stuff on their buildings and then they can't sell their units and it's I mean it's that's a whole nightmare so I mean I do I do think these broader sort of making connections amongst different groupings is super important um, but I would love to hear more the shift is actually working on something in Pemberston um, in the UK around an eviction of it this is a council estate so but I would like to hear more um, from our UK listeners what's going on <laughs> and I know you have a meeting you have to run to. Uh, so do, do you want to some, send some final words out to us and to the listeners? Yeah, I mean, I think sort of my 
The, the biggest point that I want to make, and, you know, I've, I've been thinking about it a lot, and actually, Leilani, what we were talking about last week as well in, in the meeting, um, you know, it's really around discourse and language and the creation of a common sense. And we have a common sense in the UK, which we've had now, you know, for the last generation around housing. And it has begun to be chipped away at. And that's a really, really positive thing. And, you know, as awful and as tragic uh, a, a seismic event like Grenfell was, actually, that really started to undermine that common sense. So we are in quite a good place to reframe the whole debate around housing. And associated with that, we have to reframe the whole debate around offshore money, money laundering, tax havens. It's not about offshore and shell companies and tax. It is, as you say, Frederick, about a social contract and having a society which operates, uh, you know, with a, with a proper constitution. That, well, Britain getting a proper constitution is another matter. But, you know, it's about having a society which really, you know, is, is underpinned by a social contract. Anna, you're closing this podcast in a beautiful way. We yeah. can just go and have coffee now or something. It's amazing. <laughs> amazing. Yeah, I'd love to I'd love to carry on with you. Unfortunately, I am going to have to run. Thank you very much for for taking time Anna Minton and wow, I really like the way she closed this. Yeah, it was fantastic. It's kind of cool to make our podcast because I learn stuff all the time and we kind of force ourselves to to formulate ourselves a little bit. Yeah, well, it helped. I find the podcast helps me understand what's happening out there. Yeah, you know, it, stuff happens out there, and then I bring it back, and we figure out who we're going to speak with, and then they help us understand. So that's that's cool. And as we said before, this is a very global debate we're in. Last week we talked about we had people in 119 countries listening to us. Now it's actually up to 120. And I will not, I won't make the quiz with you this time, but it's Armenia who was a new country coming in. Welcome to our listener in Armenia. I hope you share it with your friends so there will be more listeners in your country. I know that the situation has a lot of it's what happens in Armenia also happens in other countries and all the way around. Leilani, what are we doing now? How do we normally close these podcasts? Well, we normally close reminding people that we do this podcast for free and that money and resources do help pay for the production of this thing. Yeah, so it's hard to be sustainable as a, as a podcast if we, in the end, don't get any money for it. Yeah, so every time you download our podcast, you'll find a link to our Patreon account, and then you can click on it and look for Pushback Talks, and you can give us just even a little bit of money would help. It's also fun to have supporters. It's like a, it's like a family growing. So I think it's also, even if you only have a dollar or a That's euro, right. it's fine. We see it as an act of love. That's right. Deeply appreciated. Elani, that was... Um, Pushback that was talks. pushback talks. It was. Yeah, cool. So, hasta la vista or hasta la próxima. Let's <laughs> let's talk soon. Yeah, let's do that. Thank you very much. Take care <laughs> and have a have a great day over there in La Canada. Thanks, Frederick. Bye. Bye. Pushback talks is produced by WG Film. To watch Push, visit pushthefilm.com. You can also support us by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash pushback talks. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you again next week.